You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. And this is my Mother's Day special, so I'm recording this, it's actually Tuesday morning, just turned... But Sunday just gone was Mother's Day. And so I thought this episode would be eh, maybe a little provocative, asking the question, can Christians call Earth Mother? Can we talk about Mother Earth? Now, it's Mother Earth is a phrase that's bandied around quite a bit. You'll read about Gaia in some of the literature in the Eco Humanities. Uh, basically means Mother Earth, and asking in what ways we can think of the Earth as having been at least nurturing for human civilization, for the evolution of human beings, for our continued well-being and flourishing. And of course this comes back to discussions about the Anthropocene, which is the human geological era. I've talked about that in previous program so it's if you like the conglomerate of phenomena that manifest the downside of human flourishing well some humans flourishing straight away we get into trip over ourselves in terms of things what's viewed as the more correct by some label the capital they're seen but to go back it's it's things like climate change and it's ozone depletion and species loss and loss and land clearing plastics and pesticides and herbicides and you may be hearing recently about the impacts upon human fertility and sperm count so it's the way in which we've moved from the conditions which have appeared in geological history that produced our flourishing uh, a period known as the Holocene in the past 11,000 years or so and it's during that period where human civilization arose and agriculture and writing the axial religions etc and the Earth, notwithstanding the various climate perturbations that have happened, the climate's been quite steady. Now, there is, in fact, a suggestion that human beings have aided that along. Bill Ruderman, in a series of papers and in a book, now I won't get the title precisely right, but it's Plows, Plagues, uh, Plowshares, Plagues and Petroleum. It's something with those words in. talks about the early Anthropocene hypothesis, which is to say... We came out of an ice age and conditions became suitable for agriculture, both in terms of rainfall and atmospheric carbon dioxide to produce decent yields. And so land clearing for rye and wheat and emmer and all those sorts of crops released carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and wet rice agriculture released methane into the atmosphere. And so we may have kept the planet just that little bit warmer and more stable as a feedback by our own activities. 
nonetheless, the conditions at the beginning of the Holocene were purely quote-unquote natural and therefore indicate some sense of, we could talk about Mother Earth, and that's not uncommon in world religions. Now, Christians will be concerned about syncretism. I have, however, spoken in other programs, I think it was in a conversation with Matt Stone about Forest Church, that all Christianity is syncretistic with the wider culture. There's the whole idea whether or not that's a bad thing or whether or not that's at times contextualization. So could Mother Earth language be contextualization? Could it be an opportunity to build a rapport, um, a dialogue with world religions where that language was used? Does it helpfully pick up on the discussion, the eco-humanities and so on? So I want to talk a little bit about that today and I want to give it a the use of the term Mother Earth a, a cautious kind of thumbs up, one way of putting it. Now, if we turn to Genesis chapter 1, that gives us permission in a sense, but also caution. So I've spoken about before, and maybe you're familiar with the fact that the writers of the Hebrew Bible had at their disposal or in the air other cultures and other religio-political systems with which they could bounce off and interact with and produce polemics against. And so, of course, the Babylonian creation story is one such story. Now, in that, uh, Marduk, uh, the storm god, slays Tiamat, the female personification of salt water, and splits up her body and makes the heavens and the earth. So it's a, it's a story of femicide. Also, Marduk, I think I've remembered the, the detail right, out of Tiamat's general, slays him, and out of his blood, humanity is made to serve the gods. So, in this particular account, creation is an act of violence. Now, we see this in a very muted sense, and again, to repeat myself, I've spoken about this before in programs about the chaos camp, or the combat myth, that is very muted in Genesis 1, but it's still present. So, for example, on day 5, the writer goes out of their way to point that God made the sea creatures, which in the Enuma Elish would be the children of Tiamat. You see, some people contest the connection between Genesis 1 and the Chaos Camp because it is so muted. Nonetheless, the connections are there, and as I may have said before, if you've not listened to that program, fine, um, that you can't read Genesis chapter 1 without reading it in the context of the priestly flood narrative. And in that, when God finishes conquering once more the chaos and the floodwaters recede, the waters of the deep, and it's the deep that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the, the Hebrew Tehom is said to be related to Tiamat, the name of the chaos creature, the, the salt water personification, the serpent. So it's the waters of the Tehom, the waters of the deep, uh, that are unleashed in the flood and are, are conquered. That after that, just as Marduk hung up his bow, so Elohim, God, puts a bow in the sky as a reminder uh, of a covenant with creation, but also as a reminder uh, for human beings of that very same covenant. In fact, the whole of creation. So what you have then is very obviously, and this causes some concern and some issue amongst feminist and womanist scholars. I haven't dipped deeply. There's 
that's to come, that the divine feminine has been written out of the picture. And the response, and it may not, it's certainly not a complete response, is the first is that the chaos that's represented by this chaos creature is a lack of regular agricultural fertility and yield. Human beings starving, drought, you know, just agricultural lack. The other is, as I've just noted, it's the replacement of a story of femicide by a, a non-violent uh, bringing into order, bringing under control to a degree the chaos that pre-existed. But there are other things that are, that are there quite, um, if, if you dig. So, for example, we read, um, Darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind, that is the Ruach, or spirit from God swept over the face of the waters or hovered or brooded over the face of the waters. It's language in Deuteronomy that's used, I think, of a vulture, uh, a mother hen brooding over the waters. So you could say, in a sense, this is an off-the-top-of-my-head idea, as a spirit, as a midwife. Because you read later on, for example, Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And so God created. And on it goes. And then you see, And God said, verse 24, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, uh, cattle and creeping things and the wild animals of, of the earth of every kind. And it was so. So God speaks and the earth responds. The earth brings forth in a womb-like fashion. So I want to suggest that there's there's some hint there of earth as mother, but I think it's even stronger in Genesis 2. Now in Genesis 2 and verse 4 we read, In the day, oh sorry, verse 4, there's always the heading in between. You notice how the chapters divide things, or that the translators have divided uh, the text with these headings, and they can be quite distracting. Verse 4a, the first part of verse 4 reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then you get the, the second half of the verse, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you see that heavens and earth have been swapped around because the emphasis is on the earth. And in particular, the generations of the earth. Now, if you turn, say, to chapter 5 and verse 1, it reads, uh, This is the list, or the book, of the descendants of Adam, or generations of. In fact, the English language is obscuring that it's the same Hebrew word, Toledot. And so, scholars like to talk about the Toledot formula that talks about a family history. Now, interestingly enough, you read... Um, and this is the ancient worldview, I guess, is there's begatting. There's a lot of begatting going on. And it, it talks about the males of the line. When Seth had lived 100 years, he became the father of Enosh. Uh, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Canaan, and so on and so forth. And so the, the very strong similarity between 5.1 and 2.4 suggests a similar usage. Now, you might well then say... Um, does that mean that, and in fact, just to look at the likeness, um, um, there's something missing from the English here. Um, when God created, it actually is in the day God created. 
and that's again been obscured by the NRSV. Pretty sure that the similarities are very, very precise. But you could argue then that, oh, well, does that mean that everything follows in Genesis 2 is all about what the man does, the man in parting. So it's the idea that the woman is just a vessel for the seed. And certainly we read about God creating again. Um, you know, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. But while that's true... Uh, and you read, out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And a bit later on, so out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air. Yet nonetheless, while it is God, I suppose, acting as the male, it's the, the ground, the Adamah in the Hebrew. Ha Adamah means the ground or the soil. Uh, you get the pun that the man, Ha Adamam, is drawn out of Ha Adamah. And further, there's, there's an, a, a, a pun or, or a, a, um, a. Pun's the only word I can think of off the top of my head, and that's not the best word, but also relates to the word Dam, meaning blood. So it's the Terrorosa. It's this volcanic, rich soil. While God is the creator, here we're reading about a lineage of creation. And it's out of the ground. So is the the fertile soil of the earth giving birth to the creatures? Is it acting as the mother, the nurturing? And certainly there's, and I don't want to push this too far. And, and again, I'm not trying to divinize the earth. That's, that's certainly not the direction in which uh, Genesis 1 or 2 moves. It, the, Genesis 1 in particular is a demythologizing account. It's taking elements of the creation which were viewed as divine in the ancient Near East and say, no, the creations of Elohim, of God. And then we get a different picture in, in the garden story. Yet nonetheless, you, you've even got this sense of um, that go back um, when no plant of the earth, and no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field was yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no one to till the ground, so dual problem. No rain for the wild plants, uh, no tiller for the the um, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for there? The the agricultural plants. One of a better way of putting it. But then, and translations made with a stream would rise from the ground, but it's more a mist rises from the ground and rain occurs, and the ground is wet now for the wild plants and wet enough for God to make out of the dust of the earth, like a potter, um, someone to tend the agricultural soil for agricultural produce. So you see that, that two strand there. But again, it's the the Adama, the Adam taken from the Adama to, to solve a problem of the Adama, which is the need for someone to, to, uh, to tend it. So I really do think that there's there's a, a strong sense in which Earth is acting here as mother, as the source of of or the the womb is is the best metaphor because of course in the context of Genesis two you have the rain, uh, which is from God, and I don't think we need to see that in a seminal sense, uh, but certainly in a fertilizing or a life giving sense. Remember again, ancient Near East they didn't get sperm and egg but they got seed and womb. So the planting of a seed or the, the fertilizing of the ground and that being uh, that which gives life to 
And of course, you see that too in a, um, well, it's actually a really weird sense, but it, it sets things up for later uh, from the earth you were taken, the earth that you return. Uh, more precisely, yeah. Um, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. This is the curse um, after the eating of the fruit until you return to the ground, the Adamah, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, the Hebrew Afar, and to dust you shall return. Of course, we don't return to the womb. Uh, this becomes the tomb, but it sets something up that I want to do in the second half of the program, uh, which is in the New Testament. But before that, we'll take a little bit of a look at Leviticus. Welcome back to the program. And I've been asking the question, can a Christian call Earth Mother? Can we talk about Mother Earth? And we saw that there's some hints. Genesis 1 replaces uh, a, a female figure of chaos to remove violence from the account, particularly violence against women, but the violent generation of human beings more generally, and hints at the divine midwife hovering over the earth and a, a womb-like agency, the, a bringing forth from the earth. When we turn to the garden story, you have a story of the generations of the earth and we find uh, the Adam, the one created to, to tend the garden from whom which the, the woman's taken, the, the garden itself and various animals are taken out of the earth. Again, earth is the womb with which God works. One of the things that um, is talked about, there's a woman, Ewa Binchik, I think that's her, her name, and she, which she writes in the Eco-Humanities Literature, and she's talking about human beings enmeshed in the process of the planetary metabolism. I think from memory her paper talks about the hyper-agency of humanity. I don't quote me on that, but talking about the idea that humans have agency, we have the ability and power to change things, we have technology, uh, we affect changes accidentally, but our power is not unbounded and it's not um, in isolation. So she talks about the, the planetary metabolism. So getting into the thinking of Gaia or the Earth system as a living being as a powerful metaphor at the very least. I know there are issues with that. You don't think about solid rock as being living, but they're part of a system that, as I noted earlier, has kept a, a fairly constant climate for 11,000 years, has changed dramatically over four and a half billion years. But nonetheless, for a, a huge part of its history, it's been largely homeostatic. So in other words, temperature with a, um, a fairly narrow range. But then she talks about the fact that human hyper-agency has taken the Earth from Mother Earth to the uncontrollable other. And it's this idea that recognizes that, yes, okay, human beings have agency, human beings have power, but it doesn't take very much to perturb the Earth system 
to a point where it's no longer so genial to our existence. And indeed, uh, one way of saying it, I guess, is that you push a system in one direction and then there are positive feedbacks that continue in that direction. Um, a classic example um, in terms of global warming would be adding greenhouse gases, warming the planet, melting permafrost, which is permanently frozen soil, and bacterial decay gives rise to methane. And you can see that in many documentaries, and I've no doubt you can find YouTube videos where people go to frozen lakes and they tap through the, the ice at the top and light the gas that comes through and it, it sure enough it explodes and you boil the flame and it because there's methane one of the places where you find this in the hebrew bible is leviticus and particularly leviticus 18. now this is somewhat of a, a controversial chapter because it's been used to um, beat certain groups over the head and it talks about sexual ethics and so on and and how you might conceive of um, what was understood as clean uh, and unclean relationships and how that may or may not differ now is is a, an issue I want to set aside but I want us to focus on the last part of the chapter and where it reads do not defile yourselves in any of these ways for by all these practices the nations I am casting out before you have defiled themselves, thus the land became defiled. So it's interesting, there's this uh, defilement, this, this impurity, and it's transferred from human practices to that of the land. And, and then it reads, And I punished them for their iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And that's a, a really, well, it's quite a stark phrase, isn't it? Uh, the idea that the land vomits out. And this is not at all, what you would call a motherly figure, I realise, but it captures very nicely what Binchik and other scholars talk about, that Mother Earth at some point um, really turns, and we get to see a picture once more of the kind of the chaos that was meant to have been tamed at the start in this idea of the, the deep uh, being brought into order. You shall keep my statutes and my ordinances and commit none of these abominations, either the citizens or the alien who resides among you. And here in itself is kind of interesting because it's not just the Israelite that's included in this, but it's whoever lives with them. Um, and then it goes on. Otherwise, after giving what you shouldn't do, the land will vomit you out for defiling it as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations shall be cut off from their people. So it, it seems to me that it gives us a picture of how you might defile the land and the reaction being uh, the vomiting out. And this is the picture that we get in the Anthropocene, the idea, once more, that we, we exit the Holocene, the conditions that gave rise to our civilization. We've defiled the land, but not in some sense of a ritual defilement or the, the, the certain uh, parameters that have been set around uh, sexual relationships here but by say our, our economic relationships by our relationship with the earth and the consumption and the using it up as a resource by the way in which we've taken brown and black bodies and just used them as consumables in the machinery that is capitalism why are these things any less abhorrent in any way shape or form than the way in which the Israelites saw the practices of the people of the land as being such and I can't see any good reason for that to be the case. And so while this isn't the nurturing of Genesis 1 or 2, 
it is the reality it does match up it does line up i think with the sorts of things that are being talked about in the humanities literature so it's it, it's not mother earth but it, it's it's gaia i don't know gone off its head it's uh, the relationship so damaged now the last passage of the bible and i said that i'd pick up from genesis 3 and the the ashes to ashes dust to dust type thing and it's romans 8 and the language is really quite explicit we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies a bit earlier the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. A lot to be said there, um, just very briefly, that creation's craning its neck. It's expectant. Uh, and what's it expectant of? Well, we know that the whole creation is groaning in labour pains. Not as in labour pains, but quite literally in labour pains. And what, what's the end result of, of labour pains but giving birth? Now, the whole thrust of this latter part of, of Romans is to talk about um, the resurrection. Um, because it talks about we groan inwardly as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So there's, uh, re earlier on, talks about slavery to sin and uh, the result of that being death. So Paul reads Genesis 2 and 3 in a different way in which it was first aimed at. And, and that's something very common amongst uh, the rabbis, amongst uh, Second Temple Judaism. But he does it explicitly through Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead, which he talks about in chapter 1. So it's an explicit reference to the resurrection and the earth giving up the dead. So the tomb, uh, the dust to which we return, that you read about in Genesis 3, becomes the womb once more. And the rebirth of, of human beings, the redemption of their bodies. Now straight off the bat once more, we, we see that, and I just get frustrated, and I saw something in Anglican prayers again on Sunday that talks about heaven and I don't have a problem with heaven per se let's not get that that whole statement needs unpacking but people talk about heaven as if the future of humanity was some disembodied state um, pie in the sky by and by the afterlife insurance policy is our faith when the New Testament is very clear about the essential nature of the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and any form of progressive Christianity that wants to deny that, well, go and find a suitable name, but stop calling it Christianity. I know that's harsh, but it's, it's you lose so much if you lose the resurrection of the dead, you lose the future resurrection. Christianity becomes something else, something that's not been historically, something that I don't think it's, New Testament getting way too clever by half about what it really means is dot 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 well either it's there's no resurrection 
and we're still dead in our sins and Christianity is a bit of a crock and go try yoga or something else or we take the nature of the resurrection seriously and understand that for me as um, eco meteorologist come eco-theologian come Hebrew Bible scholar of not much note it's the centerpiece it's why bother with creation care why bother about worrying about the planet well you, you just get the, the sheer pragmatics of if we don't people starve well I'm 50 um, climate change might kill me off but you know I'll have had my day there has to be so much more to pragmatics than, than pragmatics or think about the children as important as that is and I do think about my son a lot and, and the world that he's um, growing up into but this idea then that our redemption of our bodies is tied up in the groaning of creation which gives up the dead the tomb becomes the womb and it's you know it's well worth noting that and I should have dug it out and I can do this another time another program that the Romans were quite happy to um, personify creation and in the same kind of context there is an inscription or a, a text that talks about Caesar Augustus who's clearly before this but says uh, that your and this isn't the precise words but your reign O Caesar has brought um, plenteous or bounteous crops back to the land it's it's the idea that you know bread and circuses you have to keep the people fed and entertained and if the the god king Caesar remember Augustus uh, said he saw Julius ascend into heaven and since he was the adopted son of Julius he was therefore son of God makes a lot of sense of what Paul says at the start of Romans it's not just religion it's not just a statement about the incarnation although it is that but it's a statement about who is the world's true true ruler who's truly in charge and Paul's saying creation's groaning and birth pains the powers that be the empire of the day is not in charge of the world be it the human realm or the non-human realm and the fate of the two is in, intimately tied up together you know again you know it's it's breaking the metaphors ultimately uh, it's the sense that the mother's salvation is bound up in that the salvation of the children who redeems her for the damage that they've done so whether it's it's genesis 1 and replacing one feminine figure for another at the very least a midwife if not an earth that gives uh, a life or the garden story where again uh, the earth uh, gives life not independent of God and not in a, a divine fornication sense um, the earth is not divine but the earth is a partner the earth is a being the earth is given agency and it's personified in the scripture whether or not that's giving rebirth or vomiting us out I think it's perfectly valid for us tentatively to address earth as our mother and given that Mother's Day has just been and gone it's yet another reminder of our need to honour our mother just as we honour earthly mothers I mean I know Mother's Day for some people is is very painful my mum's still alive so I can visit her for others, they've had difficult relationships with their mother. For others, they've lost their mother. Um, 
some people are orphans and don't know their mother. There are all sorts of sad and tragic stories in this veil of tears, as you might call it. But nonetheless, the Bible tries to redeem these metaphors and these images. So I think that let's call Earth Mother. Let's honour our mother. Let's not put our mother on the same level as God. We're not permitted to do that. We're all ultimately creatures of God together, our earth mother and our earthly mothers. But that doesn't mean any less uh, that we shouldn't honour and care and respect uh, this mother of ours. So I guess the where the rubber hits the road is firstly in drawing us together in a closer intimate relationship with the earth that we've damaged, our mother, and a call to care for that mother, but also an open dialogue and a willingness to learn from other faith traditions and, and other disciplines about our responsibility and about the ways in which they envisage that, um, ultimately, of course, bringing the unique perspective of the Bible, but being humble enough to listen and to learn. So I hope you don't consider that complete and utter heresy. Uh, if you do, this is a theological safe space, so it doesn't matter. Uh, and for those who think there's something worth going forward with, um, go forward with it. Once more, thanks for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.